From We First and Goal 17 Media, welcome to Lead with We. I'm Simon Mannering, and each week I talk with purposeful business and thought leaders about the revolutionary mindsets and methods you can use to build your bottom line and a better future for all of us. Today, my guest is Jonathan Webb, the founder and CEO of App Harvest. App Harvest is on a mission to deliver consumers options for more delicious, sustainably grown produce that is better tasting and better for the environment and people. Jonathan, welcome to Lead with We. Thank you for having me, Simon. Now, for those that don't know you, I, I know that you're a Kentucky native. So I got to ask you a start off question, which is what's your favorite bourbon? Well, uh, there isn't, that's a trick question. There is no favorite bourbon or I will have 10 distillers call me after this, uh, after this podcast saying, why not us? Right. Uh, but actually I was right before this, just, uh, sent a note to Rob Samuels, who is uh, family founded Maker's Mark. Uh, today Maker's Mark announced that they're now a B Corp. Um, and, uh, just another trend and, and, every company in every sector trying to find a way where they can have purpose at the, the core of their business. So, uh, you know, an easy one for me is I would say hats off to, to Maker's Mark uh, on being a B Corp. And uh, I'll probably go have a, a sip of Maker's tonight to toast. There you go. And uh, like, you you know, growing up in Kentucky, you know, what, what, what is one common mis sort of conception of the region of Kentucky itself? What would you say? Well, I mean, there's, there's been this, this blanket concept of flyover country, um, in general. And, and I think Kentucky's definitely, you know, been a part of that. Um, and, and again, the, the concept that all these great ideas, uh, that, that are going to change the world come out of just a few places and San Francisco being the only hub for innovation, uh, tech innovation. And that's just not true. And, and I, I hope that, you know, a part of App Harvest and, and our story over time, I, I hope it inspires the next generation to to empower young leaders that great ideas can come from anywhere and we all have access to the same information. Let me ask you, you know, your background is so, um, you know, it's so fascinating in terms of the breadth of your ambition. I mean, you you were the first to graduate from college in your family and then you went to the University of Kentucky. But then how did that lead to App Harvest, because I know that you graduated around the recession. So give us a little bit of sense of that journey, because when you see the end result, it's so breathtaking, but it's amazing where you started and how quickly you accelerated this trajectory. Yeah, I would love to say there was some great plan from day one, but there wasn't. I mean, I've always been very curious as a kid. And, um, you know, I, I definitely think, you know, kids from average middle class American families you have have a great, great opportunity opposed to, you know, some kids that might grow up in more of um, a structured um, higher end, you know, bubble, so to speak, that, you know, if, if, if you, if you're out in the world and you see it every day, you might make the argument that, that you're closer to seeing some of the problems that exist on, you know, going into a grocery store when I was young and, you know, really kind of at an early age understanding this is this food like is this really food like 80% of what's in here is some packaged box plastic thing that has a lot of chemicals and and for me just always being inquisitive young and and being you know being just aware of my surroundings i think was uh part of you know i benefit that my family i guess uh, always encouraged that um but then yeah i i was you know because of that maybe 
saw some problems and wanted to try to figure out how to be a part of changing them. Um, so for me, went, went to the University of Kentucky, graduated around the financial collapse in 07, 08. And um, the eastern part of our state, which is eastern Kentucky, has always been known for uh, coal mining. And eastern Kentucky and West Virginia are really some of the largest coal mining areas of the country. Uh, I got offered a job uh, out of college to go into coal sales. I uh, did not right. take that job uh, and pursued a career in wind and solar. And, you know, seeing the early collapse of the coal industry is really what pushed me into the wind and solar industry on seeing one industry accelerate and boom and take off. And another industry that was had every macro reason why it was going to be a challenge in the next decade or two. Um, so I, I was fortunate to to kind of see that from both sides uh, agnostically. Uh, and benefited from being a part of building large-scale solar, uh, getting outside of Kentucky for a little while and developing that. And ultimately, that's what led me to, to starting App Harvest and pursuing a career in food uh, and, and hopefully helping being a part of the, the change in agriculture in the coming decades that we've seen, uh, like the change in energy over the last few decades. But, but why agriculture and why do it in the region, you know, the Appalachians and so on, why do it there? Was there something, was it the, the, the job losses during the recession or was it just a love for agriculture or was it the food problem outright? What motivated you down this path? Yeah, I don't know if it's in the water or what it's in, but uh, something about Kentucky and Wendell Berry says it well. I mean, a, a lot of great Kentuckians have said it always brings you back here, but just anyway, it, you know, place. I mean, I, I was very rooted in place and, you know, loved, loved, this place. And it was the community where I grew up. I went to public schools here. I went to our public university. And um, I always wanted to build stuff here. But at the time, there were no, there was no industry of sustainable development here. So I left and went large, built large scale solar outside of Kentucky. I was down in Georgia and other parts in Maryland and other parts of the U.S. Um but then, you know, so why here? And we can get to that and, and wanted to come back. But then the food pieces, uh, before App Harvest, I was a part of building large solar uh, and supported the U.S. military. And I, I had a clearance and I was in and out of the Pentagon. And we talk about energy security in the U.S. Uh, and how our entire economy uh, starts and stops with energy. Um, we don't talk about food security. And if you start to really unravel uh the, the food system itself and how fragile it is, uh, it's a rabbit hole that gets more and more startling. Uh, so the business of App Harvest was really developed around the problem. And the problem is, uh, you know, our world is land constraint. We're water constraint. We currently use 70% of fresh water in the world is used for agriculture production. Um, the UN has said we need 50 to 70% more food by 2050. Uh, and some have said we would need two planet Earths to have enough land and water to produce that food. So that's global macro. And then there's the U.S. And we import 70 percent of our fruits and vegetables into the U.S. Now, what we grow in the U.S. is grown in California, where it's drought stricken, wildfires, uh, Colorado River drying up, Lake Mead drying up. Um, and it's pretty terrifying. But you look at technology, you look at the technologies available, and you go, okay, well, we can solve many of these problems, maybe not day one, all of them, but a lot of them. 
by just simply deploying technologies at scale. And, and that's what App Harvest was started to do. You use proven technologies, develop new technologies on top of that, execute at scale, uh, and help be a part of rebuilding the, the supply chain of, of, of how, we, how we grow and where we grow fruits and vegetables. Yeah, I don't think people realize the problem you're solving for is so personal. It's literally food on our table now and in the future. And the food deserts and the lack of access to you know fresh produce around the country is a problem today. And it's only going to accelerate exponentially over time. It's not some problem overseas. It's not somewhere else. It's here, right here in the United States. So as you mentioned, ag tech is a really powerful way to start solving for this at scale. For those who aren't familiar with the ag tech space and so on, what does it mean broadly and what specific kind of ag tech are you taking to market? For those that are opposed to technology, um, I would say I'm, I'm a soil loyalist and, and I'm skeptical of all man-made technology. So I'm right there with you. Uh, but, you know, technology really started with the wheel and has just moved and progressed since. You know, the, the last great technological revolution that hit American farming was the tractor. And if you look at when the tractor was first introduced, people were startled, they were terrified, and then they realized, oh, wait a second, I can get on top of it and ride it, and maybe it is good in some ways. Um, and then there are people that go, you know, they don't like technology, but they like the tractor. And, and we have to, again, level set that, you know, technology, it, when it's always introduced, is scary. And then it's us as humans how we use that technology to align with nature and try to do what's good for people and planet. And I, I definitely think that's where us as humans and industry over the last half century have failed. You know, we, we've really used technology uh, in many ways to destroy the planet, uh, in many ways harm people, um, but have been able to profit over that over the last half century. And and so App Harvest itself, you know, we we said – we wanted to align. We wanted to align with nature. We believe technology, in its highest form, is nature. You know, not the iPhone we're talking on or the computer. the The seed itself, the plant itself, the organic matter in the world that is technology. Now let's use man made technology to push and drive and support nature from behind. Uh, and and ultimately, that's what we're doing in these controlled environment agriculture facilities. You know, we're trying to put the plant first, optimize for nature and what it's good at, use technology to push from behind. Uh, but yeah, you're going to see in the next decade or two, uh, a whole host of technologies hitting agriculture that, that are really going to radically change the way we grow food from uh, robotics to AI to big data. And agriculture is a huge part of many of the global problems we talk about, uh, whether it's uh, climate and carbon, whether it's water and soil degradation, whether it's you know chemicals in our food that that harm us and harm the planet, uh, and we can use technology to better align with nature. Um, but but you know it's going to be it, it's it's definitely going to be a challenge over the next couple of decades, and it's going to take private sector along with uh, regulators and government and consumers ultimately you know consumers demanding better products for people and planet. And, you know, the consumer piece is so important, as you say. And I think one of the common misconceptions is, you know, any produce, tomato or otherwise, that's made through, in inverted commas, technology might be have a lesser taste or nutrients and so on. They don't have the microbes, microbes and nutrients in the soil that are inherent in nature. Like, help us understand, you know, you're saying that the technology is actually enabling what is naturally occurring the natural, you know, in nature's process. Would that be fair? Yeah, it's... 
there's a million different ways to do it and there's a million different ways food is grown today and it's you know not a zero sum game that this is perfect and this is bad i mean you know right. i am a soil loyalist in the sense that if you can grow food and where you live in your backyard do that and eat it i do that i try to eat as much food out of our you know what we grow as possible and then i try to supplement that with stuff i buy at the store including app harvest um, so first, can you grow it on your own and eat it? Great. Do that always, you know, but at some point, will that become a luxury? You know, as acid rain increases, as, as soil is, is, is degraded more and more and, and poisoned over time, as climate change makes a you know, look at Kentucky, we have record low temperatures in January. We had record high temperatures in December. You know, look at California where you've got wildfires, you know, that ash falls onto, onto outdoor uh, fields, the fields then are no longer, you know, the fruit is no longer edible. So it, it's a challenge to grow outdoors and will only get worse over time. But if you can do it and you can do it properly, absolutely put that first. Uh, but from there on, it's how you use the technologies. Um, it in some ways uh, can be great. In other ways, it might be compromising to the plant, the planet or people. Um and, and it's really not a zero sum game. And and what we've tried to do again is is develop a model that optimizes for the plant, uh, creates a good, healthy, fresh product for people, and and then in turn has very minimal impact on the environment. We run completely on rainwater. We have no agricultural runoff where all the rainwater that goes in our facility only leaves as a fruit and vegetable. Uh, and we run completely on recycled rainwater. So how we handle our water, then we use 90% less water than open field agriculture. Uh, you know, that, you know, for us, there's five or six big things that that ag does to impact the people and planet. And you could argue water uh, is one and then land usage is another. And And again, what we're working to do is, yes, create a good product that is healthy and good and tasty for you as a consumer, you know, but ultimately ha- has far less impact on the planet uh, so that we can free up land and water uh, for future generations. And I think what's so staggering about, you know, ag tech and what you're doing is the increase in yield that's possible to free up that land and so on. Give us a sense of that proportion, just how exponential it is. Yeah, so our first farm uh, in Moorhead, Kentucky, is nearly 3 million square feet, uh, 60 acres under glass. And we have a retention pond that holds uh, 75 Olympic-sized swimming pools in in the retention pond. It's wow. big. I mean, it, it, it. I think at one point, uh, as according to CNET, it would be one of the 20 largest structures um, behind gigafactories and a few others. So... 60 acres sounds big, but what can we do to offset uh, outdoor production? So in that 60 acres, we produce the equivalent of about 2,500 acres of open field production in Mexico or California. Two years ago, I guess maybe two and a half now, three years ago, was with the late great E.O. Wilson, uh, spoke at the Half Earth Summit at Berkeley. And, you know, EO and Half Earth have set out on a mission for biodiversity uh, to preserve land and water for biodiversity. Well, if we do not rein in the amount of land and water we're using to grow our food, give up on the concept that, that we will ever be able to turn land and water back over to the wild because we will keep chewing up land and water 
uh, as we continue to expand as a species and we will dominate all that land that that land and water for us to grow food so to to be able to to take 60 acres and grow 30 times yield per acre and replace 25 acres of an open field production and do it with 90% less water we're freeing up tremendous amounts of water and tremendous amounts of acreage that Yes, in our lifetime, we could see tens and millions of acres of land turned back over to the wild. We could see fresh water uh, you know, come back to its stable place where we're not depleting aquifers. We're not taking you know, 70% of fresh water globally and using it for agriculture production. We can use a fraction of that. Uh, and, and as a result, you know, again, let localized ecosystems and wildlife come back. So there is a way that humans can continue to expand and reduce our footprint, but we have to use technology. And I'm not saying app harvest is the end all be all solution. We're not. There's a lot of other wonderful, innovative companies and, and great ideas on how we can get there, but we got to do something. And, and doing nothing is not the answer. And unfortunately, you know, the food and agriculture discussion is really not in the global ethos. It's, you know, you, you, we talk about carbon, you know, there's the Paris Climate Accord, there's the, you know, nonstop discussion on carbon reduction. And humans have lost the ability to zero in and focus on one thing. If we solve for carbon and we don't solve for land and we don't solve for water and we don't solve for biodiversity, by the time we solve for carbon, what in the hell is the world gonna look like? Let me ask you about that. What is stalling that conversation? Because like you, I'm frustrated. There's a lack of leadership out there in terms of prioritizing the right issues, allocating resources, advocating for regulatory and policy change and so on. Is it, are there just too many incentives to keep things the way they are? Is that there just too many problems to face all at once? You know, has the issue become dramatically polarized and therefore stagnant? What's in the way? Yeah, I mean, we as humans, and I'm one of those where we all get caught up in our echo chambers and and we, you know, become this self-fulfilling prophecy of sorts and, you know, follow the leader. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of really smart people in the world. And for some reason, all we talk about is carbon. Um, there's a lot more problems than just carbon. And, you know, the, I don't know. I mean, it's hard, right? I mean, I don't get it, Simon. You go to these conferences and I do too. And, um I, we we have to walk and chew gum at the same time. We've lost the luxury to solve one problem then go to the next. We need to solve 10 problems simultaneously while putting the next 10 problems on the bench and putting those up as well. And and you know whether we're able to do it or we you know what we hand our kids who the hell knows, but you know we we carbon got it, everybody get it. I mean if you don't understand carbon needs to be solved then I don't know what world you're living in. And there's no point in even preaching it anymore. But we have to go beyond just carbon. And we have to solve for land and water and biodiversity and, and a number of other issues. Um, but the food thing, and here's what's exciting about food and agriculture. Yes, we need policy. Yes, we need regulatory framework. Yes, we need private industry. And a lot of that can follow with consumer trends. You know, we, we can be helpless in many ways. It, it is almost impossible for you to, to go build a solar project, to power your community. I mean, you could do it, but I mean, theoretically, walking out your door to go build a solar project to power your community, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit of a challenge. But to rally your community to go be conscious on what they eat and where your food comes from, anyone can do that. 
we don't need to be victim and powerless on this. We can be empowered. And in the food conversation, you yes, it's complex and maybe far more complex in many ways than just, you know, fossil fuels versus renewable energy. But the good thing is people can be empowered and this can happen like wildfire across communities, you know, but it's going to take people making those choices in their daily life and, 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 you know, how that happens, who knows? Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like part of the solution is this proof of concept that you're doing with App Harvest. You've got to actually show the retailers, show consumers, the consumer that there isn't a compromise on taste or nutrients, show the retailers that there is greater efficiencies and it gives them a, a more effective, sustainable, you know, sustainability story to tell. I mean, when you, you only started the company like five years ago now, what were some of those obstacles? Was it, you know, was it getting the funding? Was it getting retailer buy-in? Was it sort of the technology itself and the innovations weren't there? What was it like getting this off the ground? Because we so desperately need it, clearly. I mean, it it really started with, you know, maxing out credit cards and trying to, I went all in on this one and and uh, just very little resources uh, finding the, the, the original, the, the original friends and family, the credit card. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, really my credit cards initially and then <laughs> trying to even, I mean, those were maxed out and then that was, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was scary, but you know, if you, and I don't encourage people to necessarily do that per se, there are other ways. Uh, but, um, you know, for me, I went all in on this one and I deeply believed in the, in the concept. So I knew we would turn the corner. I didn't know how or when or exactly, you know, the scale at which, you know, it's definitely accelerated even a little bit beyond what I think I would have anticipated. And I'm an eternal optimist. Um, but the, um, yeah, it, it was, you know, going to the venture community, uh, founder of AOL, Steve Case, had a fund rise of the rest, convincing them to put in $150,000 early on, you know, to be able to hire a couple of engineers to develop plans. I thought we had I thought at that point, we man, we had really hit it. Uh, and then, you know, here we are, fast forward, we raised, you know, $500 million in 2021. And um, it, it's it's humbling and, and startling at the same time because the smarter, and look, and when I say smart, I just mean aware. There, there's people that have high school degrees that work on our team and they're brilliant. And there's people that have PhDs and went to MIT and they're brilliant. But the commonality is, everybody understanding that this food problem is everybody's problem and there are no good answers right now. But if we don't collectively figure it out, who is? So again, what we're doing is not the end all be all. And yes, our proof of concept, you know, selling to the largest grocers like Costco, Walmart, Kroger, we're doing that. Um, But it's just going to take time. And then even outside of that, the consumer part, it's, there's there are great products in the grocery store today. There's great products at your farmers markets, but consumers have to really be empowered to start working together to vote with their dollar to drive consumer trends. And man, oh man, it can change things overnight. I mean, these grocers do listen to the consumer. Regulators listen to the consumer. These politicians who you know we have we work closely with our governor, who's a progressive Democrat. We also work with Mitch McConnell, who's a Republican, both of which reside here in Kentucky. Far left, far right, they listen to their constituents. And when those constituents and consumers say, we as the U.S. have the largest economy in the world, we deserve a better food system, people listen. And and so I, I keep going back to the consumer because 
there is so much the consumer can do in the food and agriculture space that by asking the hard questions and putting good food on your family's plates and expanding that outside of your household to your neighbors, it, 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 can, it can take off like wildfire. And that's why I am optimistic on how quickly we can change the food system in the U.S. But it's going to take everybody together and it's not going to take one university or one company uh, to do that. But it, but it will take a consumer movement with all these other stakeholders. So, I mean, what you're speaking to is this huge tension that almost every new purposeful company faces where you, you're revolutionizing something upstream. You know, you're re-engineering the supply chain, you're producing something in a new way, but then you've got to unlock the power of the market forces to drive change by speaking to consumers mm. so that you incentivize retailers or customers of yours to actually adopt what you're doing. How do you get your arms around both? And what are you doing to kind of educate consumers about the virtues of what you're doing? So we've kind of dual tracked this. We, um, you can't, you know, re retool a supply line overnight. So we sell into that current supply model. So if you go into a large box grocer and go to Costco or Kroger or Walmart, uh, you go look for a tomato and you pick it up and you see a little sticker, you might see our app harvest name or Hills on it. Very, uh, discrete and just in the supply at scale. And later this year, we'll have strawberries, we'll have salad greens, we'll have a whole host of variety of tomatoes creeping their way into the produce aisle, not raising prices, frankly, displacing imports that, you know, again, Simon, about two weeks ago, the LA Times did an article uh, that the US government shut down imports from Mexico because of forced labor on farms. So in 2021, you as a consumer can go to maybe one of your favorite places to buy fruits and vegetables and could be coming from forced labor, could be coming from child labor, could be using illegal chemical pesticides. I mean, this is 2021 for God's sakes. I would like to think we're better than this, but it, discreetly we're selling through those current supply lines and we're in the grocer. Separate to that, we created a direct to consumer model uh, on our, you know, on our website, fight the food fight, making salsa and other value-added products for the mo more very conscious consumer that, that wants to seek us out and find us. And we're dual tracking that with a vast majority of our production going into the traditional supply lines. But you know, over time, um, it will take more than just app harvest having this conversation. It's going to take consumers that ultimately, again, drive regulators, that ultimately drive grocers when people ask me who our competition is, you know, it, it's not about us versus imports. It's about us versus, you know, illegal activity in farming that should flatly be unacceptable. I mean, I don't get it. I shock, you know, the fact that, you know, a consumer in the U.S. has to, to question, does my food have 18 different chemical pesticides come from a farm with forced labor and child labor? I mean, what 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 are we doing here? And look, the tailwinds, are moving. It's the question, will it take five years, 10 years, 20 years? You know, but, but those consumer tail, tailwinds are moving. Yeah. And I mean, one of the big points here really is that, you know, you've got to take these kind of high concepts, these global problems and distill them down to that moment of decision when a consumer is standing there in a shopping aisle as to whether they buy your product or not. It's as simple as one piece of fruit, you know, so how do you distill that? Because sometimes, you know, consumers feel overwhelmed or helpless in the face of these huge macro issues. So how do you kind of reverse engineer out of their mindset 
rather than trying to get, you know, ask them to get their arms around these, you know, these big problems? Well, again, I mean, you know, the unfortunate thing, Simon, is, you know, and we've thought about this a lot. Um, we, Martha Stewart's on our board. Martha's been very helpful for me. She's, you know, in retail and food, just uh, an icon. And, you know, the the issue is, I'm not sure there's an easy way out of it for the consumer. They, you know, the consumer has got to choose to be aware and then choose to make choices based on that awareness. I don't know there's an easy way out. I mean, we can, we're trying to get to, you know, in, in a decade, hopefully people can look at the App Harvest Hills and think of it like you would think of any other icon. And that App Harvest Hills has trust and transparency, all this complicated stuff you don't need to necessarily worry about. And you know, those hills stand for people and planet, and we're going to do the best we can to get you a good, healthy, fresh food item that's good for you, good for your family, and good for people and planet. Um, but in the short term, it's really you got to care about what you eat. It's your body. You got to care about what you put in your family's body. And if you don't care about that, I mean, you can make an argument, then how are you going to ever care about the planet? How are you ever going to care about environmental issues? Like if you can't even, if you can't even have enough, you know, time to care about what you eat and you put put into your child's mouth, how are you possibly going to care about the environment? Because if we can't get a good, healthy food system, I don't know what the next step is. I totally agree. I mean, the whole, obviously, the emphasis on leading with we is that everyone has a responsibility. And here we are putting carbon in the air, chemicals in the soil, plastics in the ocean, and then compromising our own future. And the thing that really rubs me the wrong way about this wonderful dialogue around stakeholder capitalism is everyone talks about sharing in the rewards of capitalism more fairly, including the planet, but not enough people talk about sharing in the responsibilities. And we're not powerless as consumers, as you say. Every single choice we make, in what we put on our kitchen table, in terms of what we buy, what companies we support, is a vote on the type of future that we want. What do you think is it going to take? You said that the momentum is building, the tailwinds are there and so on. In your experience, in the line of sight you have running App Harvest, do you see that it just kind of builds a momentum of its own, which takes on a life of its own? Or do you see that the we wait till that last minute where the issue becomes so acute that we have to do something different and it's a crisis response? What do you think is going to happen to get us there? I mean, it's a little bit of both, it seems like. But I mean, I am an optimist. Incredibly, you know, I again, there's the two paths. There's the post-apocalyptic world, Mad Max world. Or there's the avatar type world where technology meets nature and we live in this wonderful, beautiful place called Earth. You know, I, I believe we're going to go in the direction where technology and nature and people and planet work together. Um, but the exciting thing for me is I'm having these conversations in rural communities, you know, Appalachian towns, where people, you know, again, we think this is just happening with PhDs in Boston or London. No, it's not. Like people care. And if we give them options that most importantly, is affordable. I mean, again, the a majority of Americans are just worried about putting food on the table. For God's sakes, you, you, the 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 amount of uncertainty they're faced with, the credit card debt, the you know the the mortgage, the you know your kids going to school, the school prices are going up. We, as this business community, have to create solutions that are affordable. And I think if we do that, you know, consumers time and again are showing they do care. You know, maybe not as quickly and maybe aren't getting there as fast as we'd want, but they do care. And, and the trend is key, it keeps going up. Uh, but making sure it's inclusive and everybody's a part of the ride. You know, you we can't do this. And then at the end of it, 
great. We've got a couple of super elite restaurants in New York that, you know, have this wonderful gourmet meal from all this, you know, great sourced stuff. That doesn't solve the problem. So for the 0.01% of the world, we've created a food system that works. And then for the 99% of the world, hey, go F off. Good luck. No, it's the complete opposite. Like we need to be focused on the 90%. The 10%, you'll figure it out. The 90%, uh, and that's what's exciting for me. I mean, where this company is based, um, you know, we had we hired 500 people in the middle of COVID. We're going to hire a thousand people this year. Uh, these are average working class people that love this conversation. They love this company. They're going to war for this mission. I mean, literally every day, showing up, going to work, not just for a paycheck, but because they care about these causes. That to me. That that encourages me every single day. I can't watch the news. I can't look at social media, but I can go into our facilities and I can see our our team. I'm just I'm filled with fire to go to war with that team. And if we can keep expanding that and create a more inclusive economy that brings people in and creates solutions with them, we'll be good. And, and now the question is, to your point. Will this happen gradually or will we hit a tipping point? Well, I don't know. The last couple of years have looked a little bleak. So you might argue we've already hit the tipping point and maybe we can rebuild out of it. So uh, who knows? But, you know, we're, we're let's stay optimistic and, and try to try to make the, 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 the table as big as possible for everyone. You know, and and I couldn't agree more. And we're, we're talking about, you know, solving for a global and a national crisis. A lot, but at the same time, just listen from a business point of view about the value proposition you're talking about, your ability to attract talent, to get the most out of your people and their productivity, to build a a resilient and sticky culture that people want to stay with and join and give jobs in the local region and then take something of value to market at a greater scale with all the efficiencies you need to compete and so on. I mention all of that because I think sometimes we look at all of these crises, ocean acidification, loss of biodiversity, the climate crisis, the food crisis, as doom and gloom scenarios. But what I'm hearing from you is that they're marketplace opportunities in disguise. And when you solve for them effectively at scale, all the business benefits start tumbling out of them. Would you, would you say that's fair? Bingo. Yeah. And we just need an older generation of Wall Street investors to to kind of hang their hat up and let the new new guard come about because we'll get there. I mean, it, the, the transition of wealth uh, from, you know, this very small group of elite uh, to the, the next generation, it's going to happen, Simon. I mean, look, I, I'm a 36-year-old CEO. I hope to do this. I, I want to do this for 30 years. I can, you know, this is my first decade. I'm a couple years into the company. But I know very, very wicked, intelligent, you know, 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 45-year-olds, they're pounding away at this and, and the wall is going to break. And, and, and the, the business opportunities that are available, you can either, you know, continue to try to defend the past or eventually that wall will crumble and you can build into the future. Uh, and and all of these challenges are opportunities. And again, that's why, again, you know, that avatar world of technology meets nature. This is the opportunity. I mean, all these challenges and, and human innovation, you know, going around the challenges in front of us, building business models. It's just the right thing to do. Now, are we early in it? Are we early in the ESG boom uh, of capitalism? Probably. Uh, probably in our first inning uh, of, and, and, you know, 
still fighting against the deep trenched way of thinking that, you know, shareholders, you know, yes, capital shareholders, 100%. But the right thing to do for your shareholders is to make sure you have employees that want to work for your shareholders, to make sure you have communities that want your shareholders to win, to make sure you have broader stakeholders in government that want your share. Like it has got to be an overall wrap solution. And again, starting or kind of going back to where we started, to anyone who questions this, I encourage you to look at, at coal country and look at those coal companies, you know, back in the early 2000s that I even reached out to uh, and said, why don't you look to diversify? Be an energy company. Why do you need to? Who cares? I mean, you're in the business of making money for your shareholders. Does it have to just be coal mining? No, 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 no. Our, our sales are going up. We're good. And then the collapse. You know, you look at Kentucky alone. We did 130 million tons of coal a year. Probably 10, 15 years ago, we did 30 million tons of coal last year. So a massive drop off. Uh, change can happen fast. It can happen in every industry fast. Um, we just have to keep our nose to the grindstone uh, and have to keep pushing uphill. Yeah, we see, we see those forces changing across the whole sort of legacy energy sector. The migration is happening. The forces are building after a certain point. You know, they're unstoppable. And then you see it with, you know... Um, there's so many companies that are self-disrupting to stay ahead of this. If we cast your line of sight five, 10 years down the line and these forces keep building, what does the future of agriculture look like? You know, at App Harvest, but even beyond. Controlled environment agriculture, CEA, it's really the third wave of sustainable infrastructure. You know, you look at 20 years ago in the US and you look at renewable energy, it was a nascent boutique thing. And then over 20 years, tens of billions of dollars have flooded in. Renewable energy took off in every every state um, and and became a dominant force. You know, 10 years ago, it was electric vehicles. A little company called Tesla went public in 2010. Now, every major automotive company in the world is aggressively moving towards electric vehicles. I'm sitting in Kentucky where Ford announced two months ago their largest uh, economic development uh project in the history of Ford, and they're building a $5 billion battery facility in Kentucky and a $5 billion battery facility down in Tennessee. And then now we're sitting in the infancy of controlled environment agriculture, where you use infrastructure, you use technology to grow a lot more food with a lot less resources, freeing up land and water, uh, getting harsh chemicals out of the growing practice and, and treating people fairly. We're in inning one. Now, the question is, what's it going to look like in 10 years? You know, I don't know, but I do know I, I'm on the phone with ambassadors to countries in the Middle East. I'm talking to people in Southeast Asia. And here we are, this you know little company in central Appalachia that's headquarters here having a conversation on global food security. Uh, I'm optimistic, but it, it, it will take consumers it will take the large retailers and it will take you know government to decide that we want to have a better food and agriculture system. And, and it's not going to be one or two companies on its own. It'll be a collective together. Uh, but the future is incredibly bright for agriculture. It's There's a massive amount of innovation. Uh, and again, the focus on the plant. And I think as we evolve in the agriculture world, it's critical that we put nature first. You know, we, we put the plant first and we understand what we're using as technology to push from behind, help that plant 
The technology is the plant. I mean, I walk into our facility and I see a, a tomato plant that's nearly you know, 20, 30 feet in the air. It started with a seed. And for God's sake, somebody wants to tell me an iPhone is technology, I lose my mind. An iPhone is not technology. Somehow, someway, through where we got here, the freaking seed has evolved to the point to where it goes to a 30-foot thing in the air that gives you all this food you can eat. So getting back to that place where technology is really nature, and our job is to harness it and push it from behind, you know, there, it's, a, it's a wonderful place we can get to in agriculture, but hopefully... It won't take drought in California. It won't take wildfires. It won't take, you know, continued poisoning of our soils and waters uh, and, and poisoning ultimately of us as people uh, for us to wake up and go, we, we need to do something better and we need to do it quick. But um, hopefully it happens in five years. But if it takes longer, we're going to keep pushing. I am very much aligned with your optimism. You know, I, I don't think that we're learning something new, Jonathan. I think we're remembering what we forgot which is the inherent wisdom of, of nature. And I don't think it's cause for pessimism. I think this is the necessary, painful, but miraculous rebirth of business where we stop denigrating and stealing from nature and start serving nature. And when we do, we're going to fall in love with the natural world all over again as it sort of reveals its inherent regenerative capacity and actually provides for what we need if we just work with it rather than against it. So I want to thank you for the leadership and congratulate you on the success of App Harvest. And I expect nothing, obviously, than the great success because the need is so great, but also just as a, a proof point of what's possible when we start to embrace that wisdom that we sort of walk past every day and start to work with nature. I just, I think it's an extraordinary example. And um, thanks for sharing the insights today. Thank you, Simon. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead with We. Our show is produced by Goal 17 Media. And you can always find more information about our guests in the show notes of each episode. Make sure you follow Lead With We on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and now on all United flights on their entertainment consoles. If you really love the show, share it with your friends and colleagues. You can also watch our episodes on YouTube at We First TV. And if you're looking to go even deeper into the world of purposeful business, check out my new book, Lead With We, which is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. See you again soon, and until then, let's all lead with we.